For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 84, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. And me, Ravi Abbott. Looking a bit green tonight, Ravi. Oh God, I'm looking a bit pale. I, uh, I did the awful mistake of having a kebab on a Sunday at 10 at night. It's not good, guys. Trust me. Now, normally we record this show on like a Monday or Tuesday. We had to cancel yesterday's recording. Yeah, yeah, because I felt so bad. But um, luckily our guests remained. And if we could get like a microphone to a, a sofa or something or a toilet today, that would be real. Yeah, I think we should actually um, pin the doors open in the studio and make a direct line to the toilet for yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. So That'd if you hear Bradley's chair just spin around him running up out the <laughs> yeah. room, then uh, that's what it is. Hopefully we won't hear the follow-up noises from No, him. I don't think we're <laughs> ever going to have a kebab again. <laughs> Lesson learned. Yeah. As a vegetarian, they don't look very nice. No, and... Uh, the amount of food poisoning and my friend even got E. coli from a kebab I was like what have you been eating there are a lot of people I've been a vegetarian since I was like seven years old and a lot of people are like oh but do you not look at meat and be like oh that, that must look amazing and like oh you know I'm going to turn to eating meat again you know I, I'm the opposite dude I was a uh, vegetarian raised yeah and I read Asterix and the wild boars in Asterix look so succulent <laughs> <laughs> I was like I've got to try that I felt like being Obelix for a while you know? so Asterix made you eat meat yeah you that was su- it sue the makers of Asterix for your food poisoning <laughs> but Ravi's on the men now though yeah, looking a bit healthier today yeah yeah I'm, I'm Back at work today, so it's all right. So, we've got an amazing guest who uh, luckily did manage to arrange an interview so we can chat to him tonight, and this is going to be well worth it. If we're talking, like, you know, iconic arcade characters, obviously we've got, like, Pac-Man, Space Invaders, an iconic arcade, stuff like Defender. They're all all from Japan, though, as well, aren't they? A lot of them were, yeah. yeah, A lot of them were. But if we're talking, you know, maybe one that a lot of people will recognise and has a little bit more character than all of them put together, I think. Yeah. And he's very weird. Cubert. Yeah, Cubert was one of the kind of main f- first characters that was successful in arcades coming from America. So, mm-hmm. you know, you had Joust and Cubert were pretty much the American arcading games in the very, very early days. And uh, you've probably seen him. Cubert in uh, Pixels and uh, oh, what's that? Wreck-It Ralph? He's probably going to yep. be a Wreck-It Ralph too. Maybe even player, Ready Player One. He was mentioned in the book, so... But he's a very weird little character, isn't he? He's got, like, his own language. Uh, cu- Cubitese, is it, or something? <laughs> <laughs> but I was reading the story. I mean, we're going to find out more when we uh, chat to our guest this week, who is Warren Davis, by the way. Uh, the man behind Cube at the Arcade. He worked with the likes of Jeff Lee and uh, David Thiel on it back in the day. Obviously, uh, you know, back in the early 80s when he worked at Gottlieb, that were the company mm. that developed that game. And, uh, you know, they were actually a pinball company at first. And they had a lot of innovative technology there, including, you know, the Cubert machines had their own, like, physical knocker in there. When the character would fall to the bottom of the screen, you'd hear, like, in the oh, arcade. that's cool. And also, speech synthesis in there as well, that weird voice that he Rad- used. <laughs> <laughs> Which is actually a really good story behind that. So we're going to find out more about what I think is one of the most interesting characters. Because you look at Cubert, what is he? It's like, you know, you were transported to a surreal land with these older games, but the surreal land involved killing people. Pac-Man, he was eating stuff, but Cuba was avoiding stuff. He was just 
you know, selecting blocks. <laughs> it was a very different type of game. He was trying to get on with his work, wasn't he? That yeah. Leave me alone, everyone. Yeah, yeah. Rah, 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 rah. We can all relate to that, can't we? <laughs> That's it. So, uh, Cuba, we're going to get the story of, you know, what I think is one of the most creative early arcade titles and, uh, you know, a, a character that I think now is very dear to most long-time gamers' hearts, isn't he? Warren Davis is going to be our special guest on the Retro Hour in around 20 minutes from now. And speaking of special guests, obviously we have guests every week are right into the show now. Oh, yes, letter section. And we look forward to this. Obviously, if you ever want to get in touch with us, we read these out at the start of every show. All you've got to do is drop us an email, show at theretrohour.com. Or, you know, you can drop us a message on Facebook or send us a tweet at Retro Hour UK, if it's concise enough. But do you remember last week we were asking for um, pictures of people's retro battle stations? Oh, yeah, show us your rig. We've got a cool couple ones here I'm going to wear. Oh, cool, I haven't seen these yet. There you go. Oh, nice. Quicker, quicker than email to pass it over the table. <laughs> now, the first one that we've got here is off Tom Turner. He's known as Turbo Nips. <laughs> and he sent us this picture of his retro battle station. He's working with quite limited space. He's got a lot of stuff stacked up. I'm, I'm spotted a little kind of GameCube in the corner. He's got a Wii, an Amiga. Um, that's on the top, of course. <laughs> Acorn uh, Electron underneath, the Spectrum. Spectrum, yeah. Oh, God, it's all there. SNES Mega CD 2 couple of modern consoles, but he's actually an Amstrad on the corner as well, which you might he's, see. He's really using that shelf, isn't he? He is, yeah. So, uh, you know, that's very cool. We'll stick that on our Facebook page. And also, um, a guy whose battle stations we've drooled over for many years. You probably see him in the, uh, oh, in yes. the groups. Our good friend, George Tui. Oh, my God. This, this guy's even gone to the lengths of having a UV light in there <laughs> that kind of does the... Amiga-y kind of rainbow-y colours throughout the whole thing. It looks fantastic. Yeah, it's all. It's mainly Commodore machines. There's an Atari ST there as well, but he's got all the original boxes, CD32, Amiga 600. He's got framed articles on the wall, you know, from the magazines. Underneath, he's got the original boxes. Yeah, you're right. And then, on the second page, look what he's put in a frame in his office as well. Ah, good man. A a retro hour flyer. Paul Kitchen will be happy with that, being in a frame. He said, I pinched it from uh, Play Expo and Black Bull. Excellent. <laughs> so please do keep the pictures coming in. We'll put those on our Facebook group. Just search for The Retro Hour Podcast. And let us know what your retro battle stations look like. We're always curious to look at that. And also we got a letter this week as well Ooh. off Nick Lees. He goes, hey guys, uh, listening to this week's podcast on my morning run here in the Mile High City, Denver, Colorado. I stopped here at Mile High Stadium, home of the Denver Broncos. Ah, I've heard of them. I've lived here for 10 years. I'm a Originally from the UK, I grew up with an Amstrad CPC as my first computer, which we got all the way back in 1985. I love listening to all your great interviews with the people who made computer gaming what it is today. Keep up the great work. Oh, great. I hope he took his Amstrad over with him. <laughs> you don't see many Amstrads in America, do you? Yeah. Yeah, so uh, do keep your letters coming in. We'd love to give you mention on next week's show, show at theretrohour.com. Now, of course, we couldn't do this show every week. We couldn't bring you the latest retro gaming news. We couldn't bring you these amazing guests without the people who make donations into the running of the Retro Hour podcast. Now, we, we mentioned this on last week's show. It's not a patron. It's nothing like that. This is more a tip jar, isn't it? Yeah, totally. You just chuck in what you can afford. And I know people can't afford much at the moment. So whatever you have spare, or a spare bit of Bitcoin, or, you know, you've gone on holiday and you've got a few spare euros, just <laughs> chuck them in there. And obviously it all goes back into the running of the Retro Hour podcast. Every penny that we get allows us to keep doing this show every week. Ravi's not spending this cash on kebabs. Oh, God, don't, don't remind me. <laughs> so we've got to say a huge thank you this week in the Retro Hour Hall of Fame. Holy Chiva Church Records. Stelios Calagrades. Constantinos 
Das Kalakis. You've been practicing your Greek there, haven't you? <laughs> and also Darren Coles, who all made donations into the running of this show. Thank you so much, guys. Really means a lot to us. And of course, if you'd like to make a donation, all you've got to do is nip onto our website. You'll find the PayPal and Bitcoin links on the front page of the retrohour.com. Now, speaking of spending money, I bought a game this week. I'm jealous. I, I, you, you sent a picture out on Instagram. I did. Little Nintendo Switch there with Sonic Mania on it, and I'm sitting there, PC version ordered. <laughs> <laughs> now, obviously, Sonic Mania. I think we covered this in like our first or second podcast that we yeah, did. Yeah, because as, as everybody knows, there's two Sonic games coming out at the moment, mm-hmm. and one's by Team Sonic, who, yeah, they've not been so good recently, and one's by this amazing fan group, and it's getting released on kind of all the major consoles. And that's Sonic Mania, and it's just really like a continuation after Sonic and Knuckles, really. So it's like they've skipped the whole of Sonic Adventure, they've skipped all of this, and they've just gone to Sonic 4. It's as if the last 20 years never happened. Yeah, (laughs) just ignore it all. Now, this did come out at long last on the consoles on Tuesday. So it came out on Nintendo Switch, Xbox One, PS4. Um, As a PC gamer, it got delayed a bit, didn't it? Yeah, it did, and I've ordered the um, Collector's Edition which um, is quite expensive, but comes with some cool stuff. And uh, that's delayed a lot, yeah. What do you get with that? Collector's Edition, you get some crazy stuff. You get, like, um, a kind of cart that you can pull out that has a big Sonic ring in it. There's also, it's like a Mega Drive, a full Mega Drive, but it's actually bigger than a Mega Drive, with Sonic standing on the top, a big Sonic statue. But all it does is go Sega when you click on. Right. So it's just like a hollow <laughs> box, basically. But I was thinking, cut out the back, Raspberry Pi inside, <laughs> light in Sonic's bum, and then you're ready to go. Is there nothing you haven't shoved a Raspberry Pi in? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> so the game itself, I mean, have you seen much of it? Yeah, yeah, I've, I've watched a couple of reviews. I haven't played it myself, but um, Time Twisted was... Kind of a bit like it, you know, it's made by the same people. Well, when you stop playing it, this is what you get. Oh, nice. Now, I did, you know, start the game. It's got this great introduction animation. I played it on my Switch in handheld mode, lying on the couch. I um, only managed to play about 10 minutes of it, unfortunately, last night, because we had other stuff on. Um, but I've got to say, the minute the game started, you get introduced to the storyline with, like, a really nice animation. Oh, I've seen that. I've seen that, because it's been all over YouTube. The uh, Yeah, that looks really old school. It's yeah. like the Sonic cartoons. Yeah, which is cool. Anyway, and then the game starts, and again, like, you know, a lot of Sonic games, you plonk straight into Green Hill Zone. Yeah. (laughs) Like, it started, and I was a bit like, at first, I was like, I've waited a long time for this game, and, you know, they must have put this in about, like, 40 Sonic games now. I'm like, really, I've got to play Green Hill Zone again? But it changes really quickly. That's it, because I I saw a review of it, and there was a guy, like, going through Green Hill Zone, and... He got, he got a power-up, and I was like, I've never seen that power-up before. And then suddenly, everything he went on went on fire. Yeah. And then, like, another one, everything he hit, he just smashed through walls. Yeah. And it was like, wow, this is amazing. It brings such a new dimension to it. Even some of the bonus levels, like, you know, the 3D uh, kind of running ones, they look really good on it mm-hmm. as well, and they've you know, got some new twist to them as well. But I actually think it's a really cool concept because, you, like me, you kind of get lulled into a bit of a false sense of security, like, oh, here we go again, playing Green Hill Zone, and... And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, whoa, what, what's happening here? You know what I mean? It's yeah. like, it catches you a bit off guard. And actually, I had loads of fun playing it. So I'm looking forward to getting stuck into it even more this weekend. But I've got to say, I mean, I did actually like Sonic 4. I had that on the Ouya quite randomly. Um, I thought that was good, but I think just having the original kind of graphics and the music, like the, you know, that chemical plant zone music. 
since yeah. you hear that, it just yeah, transports no, no. you back, doesn't it, it? It does seem like a really well-thought-out game, and everyone, even some of the harshest reviews on YouTube that usually slate stuff like mm-hmm. this, it's not keeping with the original. Right? They loved it, so, you know. I think yeah. it's going to go down very well. And it's not just like a Mega Drive game kind of, you know, ported to a modern system. There is stuff in there where you look at it and you're like, all right, a Mega Drive couldn't handle this. Even then you'll go to the next level. And like, Who thought that the, the main new Sonic game that's, you know, removed all this history and everything has just been a continuation of Sonic and Knuckles would have been on a Nintendo, <laughs> yeah. you know, console? Well, it's nuts, isn't it, that, you know, they've tried so hard and they've done so many things wrong. With Sonic as a franchise over the oh, last yeah. two decades, I'm not. I'm not interested in talking Sonic or Sonic has a girlfriend. What <laughs> you know, it's not. It's not what I play it for. But then you know they finally listened to the fans and yeah. they've gone back to roots and everyone's loving it. Yeah, totally. I, I think it was that whole mess up with the Saturn and with the Dreamcast and you know how they kind of didn't release these good launch titles and weren't consistent with Sonic. Mm. But also Sega weren't consistent generally at that time. So. Or even like, you know, the, the headcanon guys and all that, you know, they're obviously, they did this as a labour of love as well. Yeah. And, you know, it really shows as well. I mean, anyone who loved those games back in the day, you're not going to be disappointed. Definitely. And like 15 quid as well, wasn't wow, it? Wow, that's a good price. And speaking, oh, Not the collector's edition. Yeah, yours is probably a bit more. <laughs> about 70. <laughs> I would like it on physical on the Switch, though. I know it's just a, like, a little cartridge you put in the top, but it'd be yeah. nice to have the box. Yeah. I bet there will be some like homemade ones on eBay or something come up, no doubt. Some dodgy conversions. Well, actually, speaking of that opening um, animation... Someone's actually ported that back to the uh, Mega CD. Oh, of course they have. <laughs> <laughs> now, it's a guy on uh, YouTube. He's called The Stone Banana. Um, they haven't got the talking and all that in it, but what he's done is kind of like down-resed it to that original kind of low-fidelity movie format that was on the Mega CD. Kind of put the board around there, and he's actually swapped out the Sonic CD logo for the, uh, the Sonic Mania logo as well. A lot of people in the comments were very cynical, saying all you've done is kind of downgraded the colours and the Mega Drive couldn't show like, these many colours in the game. Uh, but then he actually... Actually, post some proof that this is running on the Mega CD itself. So, if, if fans could maybe port their game back to the Mega CD, the that'd original be system, yeah, that'd yeah, be amazing. That'd be cool. So, as it is, though, you know, I actually bought a Nintendo Switch mainly just to play this game on holiday. Mm, yeah, and it, it shows the demands there. You know, yeah. fortunately, my holiday's been and gone now, but you know, I have to book another one now, won't I? Well, also talking of demand, we covered Night Trap last week. Yeah, and um, the copies sold out straight away, didn't they? The PS4 ones. Mm-hmm. There was a limited print, and hardly anyone could get it. I, I came looking after the podcast and I was like, oh, let's look at the social media accounts. I want Night Trap, I want Night Trap. It was crazy. It's mad how much interest Retro is getting all of a sudden, isn't it? Yeah, crazy. So, you know, maybe some people have stumbled across this show because of the Night Trap episode last week and you're like, oh, I'd like to find out a bit more about old games and you are in the right place. Yeah, definitely. Sorry, I keep saying definitely. <laughs> <laughs> it's good to be affirmative, right? Really, yeah. Now, something that is kind of missing from our high streets, you know, you walk around town these days... What was different 20 years ago? Obviously, you had the shops that were there on the high street that are not there today. Our price records long gone. You had those little stands with guys going, Evening Post! <laughs> <laughs> that was around our area. People, newspaper sellers shouting. Rumbelows on the high street, do you remember that? Yeah, yeah. What about payphones? Payphones, yeah. I, re- I remember payphones when they turned into text and email phones as well, and you could go to the payphone and actually text from there and... Yeah, that was like, about 10 years ago, they tried to reinvent them with that, didn't they? Yeah. Or maybe a little bit longer ago. But it now turns out that BT are finally admitting defeat, and they're set to scrap half of the UK's remaining payphone boxes, but because apparently usage has fallen on them 90%. So they're going to get rid of 20,000 payphones across the UK. I, I, I can see why. The only places I've seen payphones recently have mm. been dodgy areas. 
and people doing deals within them and stuff. <laughs> that's that's the only place I've seen them. I've seen a few um, specialist disabled payphones, which are actually halfway down, but I'm not sure why they're required if people have mobile phones and especially charger packs and stuff like that. Well, they reckon that a third of payphones that do still exist in the UK are only used once a month, and many are not used at all throughout a year. You know, some of them haven't been used for like a year long. Wow. Uh, but the ones that are in more regular use, regular use apparently 33,000 phone calls a day are still made from phone boxes. Oh, okay. So uh, sorry if I'm offending any um, payphone users, <laughs> you know, or drug dealers. <laughs> payphone enthusiasts. Yeah. <laughs> and the ones around me are generally used as public toilets, I think, when I yeah. go past But, I mean, I can see there are probably use cases for them, you know, in places like train stations, for example. If you're on the train, your phone battery's died. Places with them. no signal, actually. There's still a lot of places in the UK, actually, that don't have signal. My parents went out recently uh, to the Lake District yeah. and couldn't get in communication for days. They were like, you just have to ring us when we're at the hostel. I was like, what? <laughs> what is this, the 80s? <laughs> well, from what I've seen recently as well, a lot of the ones that do still exist have kind of repurposed them as kind of joint phones and um, ATMs as well. Well, have you seen the one in town? What's that one? It's a hipster coffee shop. In a phone box? In a phone box. He's got a barista at the top, a fridge at the bottom, he opens it, it's got his menu. And actually, there was a homeless guy sleeping in there before, so right. I don't know if the hipsters kicked him out. <laughs> it might be him, he might just have a shave. Yeah, 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 a little bit. It. Saved up for a coffee machine. So, I mean, the, the decline of payphones is inevitable now that everyone's got a mobile phone on their hands, but I can see why they're doing it as well, because apparently they're spending more money on doing them up after vandalism than they are yeah. like making money off them, so... It's something that's kind of a sign of the times, really, isn't it? But when you do walk past a phone box and look at it and you see the old like, kind of BT logo, there's something a bit nostalgic about it. Yeah, and I think they keep the red ones alive. Yeah. They, they, they constantly maintain the red ones because they're just iconic now, aren't they? So. And again, they're turning those into kind of different kind of Yeah, that's one of the hipsters' they? ones yeah. is a red one. Yeah. You, <laughs> I always remember when we were kids, we'd like go to my friend's house and he had a phone box outside and we'd ring the phone box to see who pick it up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That was always fun. You could do that really easily. That'd be a great. Or you could phone. just ring someone and and have the beep beep and go. I'm running out of money, and they get really confused. <laughs> <laughs> or you could do one for one reverse. Are, are you calling off a payphone? <laughs> yeah. So yeah, make the most of them while you can. Um, but yeah, I mean, looking at the picture on this article in the Guardian, I wouldn't want to use that payphone. No, <laughs> looks a bit grotty. Got to say. Now, the Nintendo 64 controller, now remember we were talking, I think it was about two weeks ago, about the fact that Nintendo have uh, done a patent for like an updated N64 controller? Yeah. And we were wondering, is this going to be like an N64 Mini, or maybe, you know, it's going to be a re-release controller for the Switch maybe to play N64 games off the virtual arcade? Well, it turns out somebody else is actually making a new Nintendo 64 controller for the original system. Oh, cool. Oh, and they've replaced the set triggers. This looks totally different, doesn't it, to the yeah, original? Yeah, because the main one had that weird prong in the middle and you could hold it like a gun and kind of shoot with it, couldn't you? Well, there's about three different ways of holding the original. And the original controller was... Mario 64 was the main game that controller was designed for. And then other developers had to kind of work their game around that control mechanism. But a lot of people hate it. And the N64 is a great console, but I do know people who are just awful on the games on the N64 simply because of that controller. So now it turns out there's a Kickstarter running to make a functional, modern N64 controller, getting rid of that three-pronged design, making it comfortable, and looking at it, I mean, it kind of does take quite a lot of inspiration from, you know, stuff like the Xbox 360 controller, 
and the uh, Switch Pro controller, for example. Yeah, I was going to say the uh, Switch Pro or the Wii U Pro as well. They're they're quite. They're, I think they're the same controllers, but it's got more of a a kind of a a straight edge design on it. You know, it's not all smoothed and rounded. It's got like a few straight sections on it. And you've got the analog stick that's more like a, you know, a thumbstick that you get on modern controllers. Mm. You've got a D-pad on there as well. And the Z-triggers are at the back. Yeah. Like, not underneath it. You know? like, it does look a lot more comfortable to hold. Its worth has been proved by the Kickstarter. Now, they put this on there on a 30-day Kickstarter. They wanted to raise $13,000. And already at the time of recording this, they've raised $116,000. Wow. I, I, I already knew about this because I was on Kickstarter and people I'm following started backing that project. And I was like, oh, what is this? Straight away, yeah. yeah. It's only been going eight days at the time of recording this. So, and they've already you know, made 116000 So this is obviously something that people have wanted for a long time. But I didn't realise quite how many people really hated the N64 controller. Surely there were some third-party ones out at the time. Maybe they didn't, you know, they weren't up to scratch. Well, what's really good is, you know, they're actually selling these for $20 each to the backers. Oh, cool. So wow. you look at this, you know, the, the Switch Pro controller, and that's like 59 quid. That's crazy. Yeah, so you can I see. I think the build quality is good. It looks it from, I mean, obviously it's just a video, and, you know, I'm not sure whether these are renders or whether they're actual photographs. It looks pretty good, I've got to say, if they are, but it looks like it should be a good, solid controller. Obviously, we can't tell until you get it in your hands. It's always very subjective, but for the sake of 20 quid, even just to get something a bit different, yeah. for people who maybe are just getting into the N64, it's probably good as well. And if you've got a friend coming over and he's like, oh, I've never really played it before, then it's good to put them on this instead. Do you think they'll be compatible with the mini N64 that comes out? Ooh. Yeah, well, you know, if it's got the original ports, you'd imagine it would be, but, you know, that obviously hasn't been There confirmed. might be some strange converters or something. Oh, Has, hasn't be been confirmed yet, though, has it, Ravi? Don't no, get ahead no, of yourself. No, 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 sorry. I'm getting too excited. <laughs> getting overexcited about the, all these minis everywhere. Vapor. It could be vapor. <laughs> I'm sure it'll happen. <laughs> so we'll put that link to the Kickstarter if you're doing a back that and get yourself one of those for 20 bucks. That's not bad. We'll put that in this week's show notes at theretrohour.com. Right then, well, thank you for checking out episode number 84 of the Retro Hour podcast. The next episode will, of course, be coming out next Friday, just before the weekend, available from all of your favourite podcast clients. And we're going to bring you another controversial game. Yeah, next week should be a good one, shouldn't it? Probably the most controversial game ever released. <laughs> Other than Manhunt, yeah. yeah. We'll try and keep the uh, that explicit tag off our yeah. <laughs> rated to iTunes. Yeah, we'll keep our guest in check next week. But now, though, a family-friendly character on this week's show. Oh, yes. The lover, not a fighter. We've got Qbert. This week's special guest, Warren Davis, the man behind Qbert. And we'll see you next Friday. Ciao. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and it is time to welcome on this week's very special guest. Welcome to the show, Warren Davis. Hello. How are you, Warren? I am doing very well, thank you. Uh, and, and greetings from across the pond. <laughs> to think the things we can do with modern technology. It's true. But on this uh, chat, we're obviously going to go uh, back in the day, way back to, you know, those dark ages of video games when it all first began. Um, but I thought it might be quite interesting to find out a little bit about your backstory, um, where it all started for you. I mean, do you remember your first ever experience with a computer then, where it all began? You know, I do. Um, I was introduced to computers in high school, which was kind of an unusual thing back then because computers um, generally, uh, you know, there was no such thing as a personal computer uh, when I was a child. Computers were large things that took up rooms in, and usually at, uh, you know, major corporations or universities. But uh, when I was uh, in high school, I was fortunate enough to go to a high school that had their own computer. It was a, a desk-sized computer. It, it looked like a desk, 
Um, <laughs> it was L-shaped. It had a typewriter sitting on the, this desk as the uh, input and output, and so you would type stuff in on the typewriter, and it would type stuff back to you. It was a pretty cool thing. Um, I was fascinated by computers as a child. You'd see them in movies, mostly science fiction movies, mm -hmm. um, uh, and uh, and they just seemed like fascinating things. So, um, and I also had a sort of a mathematical mind as a child too. I was math was one of my best subjects, and uh, so um, that lent itself to logic and uh, and programming. And I just started getting into it in high school. So you went on, obviously, to uh, do engineering. Is that right? At college? Correct. Yeah. So uh, when I, you know, when it was time to pick um, a, a field of study for college, uh, there were really two things uh, I wanted to pursue. One was computers. I wanted to learn how to build them, basically. <laughs> um, and the other was filmmaking, because uh, I was a super eight amateur filmmaker in my teens. And I really enjoyed that as well. I was fascinated by filmmaking. For me, it was a 50-50. I would have been happy either way. Of course, everybody steered me towards computers because uh, filmmaking didn't seem like a proper career for, a, <laughs> you know, for success in life. But um, I was happy to study computers, and that's, that's the direction I went. Were you ever into kind of stop motion and stuff like that early, playing around with film techniques? And I was, I was, I, I had a, um, I had a Super 8 camera that had a stop motion um, ability. It had a frame release, so you could literally uh, screw in a little uh, cable release and take one frame at a time. And I did used to play around with stop uh, stop motion animation. Loved the results I got. It was so much fun. Um, and I had a friend who was really talented as a stop motion animator. Uh, he would build, he built like little dinosaurs and a little set, and he made his own. His, he made a dinosaur movie that just looked fantastic for somebody who was, you know, probably about fourteen years old at the time. Well, obviously, when we got into the late seventies, we had the uh, you know the first arcade revolution started. I mean, do you remember seeing your first video game? I do actually. I was in uh, college. I was a freshman in college, and at my at my college they had a game room in the student union, uh, which was mostly filled with ping pong tables, pool tables, uh, and then there was a small area for arcade games, which at that time meant pinball machines. And, and maybe some mechanical, like there was a mechanical baseball game, I don't know if you remember those, where, you know, looked like a baseball field and you'd hit a bat. Of course, I guess they wouldn't have had those in England. But uh, here they cricket have pitch. mechanical yeah. games. <laughs> cricket, yeah. Did they have mechanical cricket games? Uh, we, we had kind of horse racing ones. So, um, uh -huh. you know, everybody would bet on the horses and then you'd have a big line and it would be at the seaside and they'd kind of race across the track. <laughs> sure, sure. Okay, I remember things like that. Yeah, so, um, but that's what they had. And then I remember them wheeling in this strange-looking machine that no one had ever seen before. Uh, and it was a video game, and I'm pretty sure it was um, either Computer Space or Space Wars, one of those two, um, you know, s you know the, the crudest possible simple graphics, little dots uh, on the screen, but it was absolutely fascinating because your mind filled in the gaps. You know, you had a goal, and you knew what you had to do as far as gameplay, and, and it, was, uh, it was challenging. You know, in my student union, the, that one game was followed by Pong and then followed by, you know, uh, Tank 
Breakout, Scramble, all those early, early games. Uh, Space Invaders, I think, came out in the late 70s. I was probably out of college when Space Invaders came out. So, um, yeah, I, I played all of those games. And and I would say, I, I, as a, com a guy who studied computers, I sort of dreamed of being able to make these games. I thought this would be the most amazing dream job possible. I, I should also say that my whole interest in computers, or at least in the use of computers, was related to um, entertainment. I mean, I, I just felt computers were a perfect tool for, you know, having a laugh with people. Well, when video games came out, I was like, man, how do I get that job? And I honestly didn't know how to get that job. I, I just assumed you had to be really special. You had to be some sort of genius or know the right people, and, and I did not know the right people. So I, it was just a pipe dream for me. So after college, you got a job at Bell Labs. Um, so at Bell Labs, uh, I was hired... <laughs> so it was Okay, this is kind of funny, but my studies were sort of integrating hardware and software, which was kind of unusual at the time. Mostly you either studied hardware and got a double E, electrical engineering degree, or you studied software and got a computer science degree. But I was in one of the first, actually I think it was the second year that this discipline was offered. It's called computer and systems engineering, which was supposed to be sort of a hardware and software thing. I guess the world was just sort of coming around to realizing that hardware and software are sort of interrelated. Anyway, um, I was looking for a job that um, did not force me to pick between hardware or software. And that's what this job at Bell Labs promised to be. Unfortunately, when I moved out to the suburbs of Illinois, which is where this job was located, um, it, turned out that it turned out to be neither hardware nor software. <laughs> I ended up writing uh, tests for new operator systems. So basically the consoles that the operators would sit at when you, you know, back in the old days when you used to dial O for operator, you would actually reach a person sitting at a console. And uh, I worked for the uh, group at Bell Labs that basically wrote uh, the software that ran these consoles. And so basically I wasn't doing any software development or hardware development, I was just writing tests. And uh, it was kind of interesting in that they'd send me to some city uh, where I'd live for maybe five or six months. And then we'd be put up in some office somewhere, uh, usually a, a telephone company office that was going to be the guinea pig for this new version of the software. And we would just run our tests. We'd spend a few months writing them, then we'd spend a few months running them. Uh, and then when we were done, they would say, okay, here it is, it's working. And um, we would come back to suburban Illinois and work on the next one. How did you get into the process of kind of making video games then? Um, so what happened was I, I found this uh, job at Bell Labs somewhat dissatisfying for a number of reasons. One, I, I wasn't doing actual hardware or software development. And two, they were sending me to cities where I was actually enjoying myself. I was a single guy at the time and I was sort of, you know, learning my way, making friends. And then after five or six months, it'd be like, OK, you have to leave now. And I was like, but well, wait a minute, I like it here. <laughs> so I, I was kind of getting tired of that that lifestyle. And uh, they did, uh, Bell Labs did put me on um, an actual development project. It was considered an R&D project. And I was actually working with a speech recognition group. Um, speech recognition being in its very early infancy back then, 
but uh, we were working on um, speaker independent voice recognition for digits only mm -hmm. and uh, I was doing some hardware development for that group which I enjoyed tremendously but I was only on loan so they kept pulling me back into the testing group after a few years I got tired of that and I decided I, I think I can do better so I I quit my job at Bell Labs and I moved into Chicago and that was a whole nother <laughs> that was a whole nother decision because uh, I kind of when I left Bell Labs was fed up with engineering I just started to think you know I'm not right for engineering I don't fit in I'm not like the rest of these guys uh, and I had seen some improv shows in Chicago at the Second City and I thought you know that's that looks like fun I think I could do that uh, so I moved into Chicago and started taking classes at Second City to learn how to be an improv performer uh, and I was unemployed for a few months and after about four months of being unemployed and of course the, the money I had saved up from working at Bell Labs was dwindling and I had taken some odd jobs that didn't really last very long and I thought you know it wouldn't hurt if I just looked in the Sunday paper and looked at the want ads and saw what engineering jobs were available <laughs> You know, I mean, I hated myself for doing it, but I thought it's not going to hurt. So I would check the Sunday paper, and lo and behold, one one um, fateful Sunday, uh, actually the Sunday between Christmas and New Year's in 1981, uh, I saw an ad where a company called D. Gottlieb was looking for video game programmers. And I couldn't believe my eyes when I saw that. And the amazing thing is, I actually thought twice about it. I was like, no, Warren, you said you were getting out of engineering, and it's going to be back in the same old, you know. And then I thought, well, look, it doesn't hurt to send a letter and a resume. So that's what I did. Um, I got an answer back within days, very quickly. Uh, they asked me to come in for an interview, and right after New Year's, I went in for an interview. That interview made me think I was never going to get this job. Uh, the interview did not seem to go well. The VP of engineering just seemed to have nothing but contempt for me. Uh, but then, lo and behold, they offered me a job. So there I was. Well, do you and, have any, like, programming experience or game design background or anything at this point then? Uh, I had no experience making video games. Mm -hmm. uh, I had virtually no experience with computer graphics, even though all during my undergraduate and graduate time I, I desperately wanted to learn about computer graphics I just didn't really have too many opportunities to do anything you know I mean I, I did have a master's degree in electrical engineering I did understand computers and software uh, and I had a burning interest in in making video games but when they asked me about my experience I had to be completely honest I said look I I don't know if I can make a video game or not I've never done it I just want the opportunity apparently they realized at that time, because Gottlieb was very new to video games then, they didn't have any video games that were produced in-house at the time that, that had gone out the door. And so I think they realized that they're hiring people. You know, there, there really were no video game experts back then, or I should say there were very few video game experts in January of 1982. Uh, Gottlieb had hired a guy named Tim Skelly, who was one of the few uh, video game experts because he had had a string of hits for Cinematronics. Uh, Ripoff, that's another one of his. Um, anyway, so Tim Skelly was hired to sort of be the guru to help lead uh, our fledgling team of inexperienced programmers to to make some games. 
Well, I mean, Gottlieb, originally they were a pinball company, weren't they? And I mean, when you guys started doing video games, was there ever a bit of a conflict between the pinball guys and the video game guys? Well, yeah, it didn't last long. Uh, and uh, basically, the, the the history of it is that Gottlieb was a pinball company, uh, as were uh, Stern and uh, uh, Williams um, and Bally. Uh, and they all got into video games. Gottlieb was... I think the last of them to get into video games. I think all those other pinball companies sort of jumped on video games much earlier than Gottlieb. The video department was completely separate from the pinball department. They, the pinball, uh, sorry, the video department was led by uh, Ron Waxman. He was the VP of engineering, and Howie Rubin was the VP of business development. And the t these two guys are the guys who built the video department at Gottlieb. But we were given a separate space. We were actually probably about eight miles away from the uh, initial, from the main plant in North Lake. We were in Bensonville, and we had complete freedom and autonomy, and Howie and Ron were great at sort of protecting us from the rest of the company. So we really didn't have much of a sense um, of what the rest of the company was doing. We, we never were introduced to anybody else, or we never visited the main plant. Um, and then about... Midway uh, through the year 1982, I was actually in the middle of development on what would become Qbert. We were moved from Bensonville to Northlake. They decided, I guess, they didn't want us separate, and they brought us in. And they didn't tell the pinball guys anything. Uh, they didn't tell us anything. They didn't arrange for any sort of meet and greet or mixer or anything. We just showed up one day uh, in a new space. And we were actually kind of excited because I think a lot of us uh, in the video department were pinball players. We really uh, admired uh, these pinball designers, and we were kind of excited to meet them. And when we got there, we just kind of got the stink eye. You know, <laughs> people were giving us these looks and glaring at us. What we didn't know is that a lot of these pinball guys wanted the opportunity to do video games, and they were not given that. The company just didn't give them that opportunity. Um, so there was a there was a little animosity that we weren't aware of, but it it, it you know it, it all took care of itself. I mean, once they got to know us, they realized that we you know we weren't the bad guys, and and we understood where they were coming from. So it really did all work itself out. So let's talk about Qbert then. Obviously, what an iconic game and a very interesting concept as well. I mean, how did you first come up with this concept of an isometric game? Well, you know, I, I mean, it, it didn't start with a concept. Uh, that's the one thing about Qbert. Um, it, it was an evolutionary game. Um, it was literally one piece at a time, and every time one piece got done and was working, then I would say, oh, okay, what should I do next? And I really never looked beyond the next thing because it was my first game that I was working on by myself. It was the first game that I was uh, this, you know, basically the sole uh, programmer of it. I just didn't want to complicate things, and I didn't want to uh, extend beyond my abilities. So um, it started out as a learning exercise, a programming exercise for me. What happened was Jeff Lee, who's a graphic artist and amazingly talented guy, uh, had come up with this sort of Escher-like pattern of cubes that filled the screen. And um, this is a pattern, I have to say it's really weird, but I've been seeing this pattern everywhere I look lately. Seriously, I mean, I, 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 I saw it on a tie, I saw it on a, and not the pyramid, okay? Just the, Again, it's just sort of like a never-ending pattern of these cubes. Mm -hmm. I saw it 
at the Getty Villa here in Los Angeles, and the Getty Villa is modeled after an actual Roman villa, and they showed a film uh, at the Getty Villa of the actual Roman villa, and it had this pattern in it, in this actual Roman villa. So the pattern is not new. The pattern's been around for thousands of years. So anyway, uh, Jeff Lee had created this sort of cube pattern, uh, and Khan Yabamoto, another programmer, was using it as the background, again, just filling the screen. But when I, I was walking by one day, and I looked at his screen, I saw this cube pattern, and I thought, well, this is interesting. If it was shaped like a pyramid, right, and something fell on the top, like a ball, for example, dropped on it, it would have one of two choices of which way to bounce. And of course, as a programmer, you like the idea of two choices. That's zero and one, uh, which is a bit. And if you put eight bits together, you get a byte. So every time a ball would fall on this pyramid, it, it would have one of two choices. And with one byte, you could determine the entire path of a ball. So with a string of random bytes, you could have a string of random paths. And, you know, I, I didn't, I had never programmed randomness and I had never programmed gravity. So I thought, all right, this is a good exercise. So I set about uh, molding this, uh, these background blocks into a pyramid shape that was just sort of floating on the screen. And I asked Jeff Lee to give me a, a ball that would bounce, that I could make bounce. Uh, and I programmed a ball bouncing down the pyramid. And that's it. That was as far as I had thought it through. But when I got that far, and people would walk by, and they'd look at it, and they'd go, hey, that, that's, that looks pretty cool. So, uh, I, okay, well, what, what would be the next thing? The next thing would be to have a player character jumping around. And then, again, that's a challenge. That in itself, for me, was a challenge. There was gravity elements. There were directional elements. I had never done it before. There was control elements. So I, I asked Jeff to give me a player character, and Jeff had, Jeff had drawn up all of these crazy-looking characters, and he showed them all to me. I liked the one with the uh, you know orange oval body and the long nose, and I said, let me let me use that one. So <laughs> he uh, drew up all the angles I needed, and and then I was off and running trying to get the character jumping around the pyramid. Was he and, based on anything then? Was it? He's got like the nose of an anteater. He's a bit of a mishmash, isn't he? Well, again, you'd have to ask Jeff where it came from. I mean, Jeff's original idea was that this character would shoot out of his nose. So that's why he's designed that way. He was designed, and again, it, you know, Jeff has a very, you know, comical sense, uh, as I do. And um, I, I thought the idea of him shooting out of his nose was a great idea, but it just really complicated things. And I also had no idea how to make that work, given the geometry of the pyramid that I wanted to put this character on. I, you know. Shooting, you know, aiming and all that stuff just seemed to way overcomplicate things. And again, this was my, my very first time programming a game, and I wanted to keep it simple. But, um, you know, you'd have to delve into the mind of Jeff Lee to really understand uh, where the design of the character came from. I mean, all the characters in Cubert are very, you know, bizarre and surreal, and um, that's, that's, that's Jeff. <laughs> well, obviously turning it into a fully-fledged game, I mean, having the, the cubes change color... Did the idea come pretty late in the process then? That was kind of one of the next two things. Um, because once you had the player character jumping around, then, then you know, the, I think the next thing was, well, what about having an enemy uh, chasing him around? And, and so it's possible Coily was the next element. The Coily thing was obvious. He needed an enemy. But the, the cube changing thing was not obvious. And, and there was one night 
where uh, I was working late and I was just playing the game, you know, basically having, you know, hopping around this cube, this pyramid of cubes, avoiding balls. Actually, that's the next thing I remember. After the player and the balls was the collision detection. Obviously, the player had to avoid the balls and he had to get killed. So that's as far as I had gotten. And uh, Ron Waxman, our, our VP of engineering, is a very large man, very large. And he would always smoke a cigar and he would stay late frequently, and, uh, and he had a habit of sort of just sort of coming into the workroom. We all worked in this sort of like big open room where we had different tables. We didn't even have cubicles. We, you know, we just had tables. And he had a habit of coming in and just sort of sitting behind you while you worked. <laughs> and it was very <laughs> unnerving <creepy>. <laughs> because you could hear him breathing uh, and smoking a cigar uh, I mean, he wouldn't say anything most of the time. He would just watch. So, you, you, you know, you got used to it. But uh, I was playing around, and I was having this character jumping around the pyramid, and uh, just out of nowhere, he said, uh, what, if, what if the colors on the cubes changed when he landed on them? Something like, something to that effect. And that struck me as a brilliant idea. I just immediately thought, yeah, that's great, because the one thing that this game had been missing was a goal. Um, you, I, you know, avoiding enemies is, is, is one thing, but you really needed a goal or a way to sort of end the screen, and as soon as he said that, I was like, yeah, yep, that sounds good, and I set about to, uh, to implement that, and that's, in my mind, that's when it actually became uh, a game. And it's often the simple ideas that really work the best as well, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, I, I wasn't uh, arrogant enough. This was my first game, and I, I, I wasn't arrogant enough to think I knew everything. So I was happy to listen to ideas. The, the fact is, people were constantly barraging me with, with ideas. Everybody had an idea of what they wanted to be in the game, what they didn't, uh, what they liked in it, and what they didn't like. And I, I started to think of myself as the filter uh, you know, so I would take in all these ideas and I would filter. If somebody gave me something that I thought was a good idea, I would say, oh, great, thanks, and I would do it. And if somebody gave me an idea I didn't like, I'd say thanks, but I'm, I don't, I'm not going to do that. So, you know, shooting uh, out of the nose, obviously, was one thing I did not do. There were plenty of others. And uh, Jeff, Jeff Lee became sort of my um, collaborator in that regard because, you know, he had a lot of ideas, some of which were great and some of which I didn't think were I, I could do. You know, and then uh, Dave Field came in for, with the sounds, and um, and he sort of completed the uh, the triumvirate there. And uh, so, really, I really feel like the three of us uh, have authorship of the game as a whole. Well, talking about the sounds, I mean, that was a very interesting choice. Where did Cuba's language or voice come from then? Well, a lot of it came from a particular chip that was on our soundboard. Uh, it was a uh, it was called the Votrax, and it was a voice chip that was supposed to give you human speech and uh, Dave Thiel had used this uh, chip in, in doing sounds for other games, pinball games, but uh, it, it came out with a very monotone, unhuman sounding um, you know, voice. It was based on phonemes, so basically you had different phonemes for different sounds and you had to string them together in the right order to make a word, but uh, Particularly, he, he felt like it, it was never able to say the word bonus. He felt like whenever he tried to program it to say bonus, it sounded like bogus. <laughs> um, and he didn't. He just hated this chip. He just thought it was terrible. But 
when he saw Kubert and he saw the game that you know running without sounds, his immediate thought was, I could use those random phone those phonemes if I spewed them out just randomly, uh, it would sound like gibberish, uh, and in fact it would sound like swearing. And uh, you know I think Jeff came up with the idea of having the cartoon balloon, like if you got hit on the head, just like in a cartoon, you you have this swearing balloon right mm -hmm. and uh, and uh, so when Dave saw that and he said I've got the perfect sound for that so it was all sort of very synergistic and what about the name then because even the the way that the name is stylized with the asterisks that's that's quite unusual did you have any like names that you went through first and how did you arrive at the the final name uh yeah yeah so I, I didn't have any name for the game at all I called it cubes that's you know I, I was not <laughs> I was not interested in naming things I was more interested in having a game that, you know, would be interesting and fun and might actually get out the door. So, uh, but when we got to the end of development and we were talking about putting it out on test, obviously we were, we had to have a name for it. And uh, Howie Rubin, our, our, you know, outside of the box thinking VP of business development said, let's call it the swearing balloon. Let's have the swearing balloon be the name of the game. And we all just like shook our heads and said, what? <laughs> I mean, we thought he was insane. And um, he was, but that's another story. But he, and he said, um, look, if it's a good, good enough game, people are going to find, you know, because we would say, what, what are you going to call it? I mean, how are you going to talk about it? And he said, people will find a way. If it's a good enough game, people will find a way. Well, you know, he went so far as to actually have marquees printed with that cartoon balloon. Uh, and they went out on test that way, but um, you know, eventually we realized this is not going to fly. So we actually had to name it. And I went around the entire office to everybody at Gottlieb, and I asked them for suggestions. And I would write them down. I had a pad of paper that just had, you know, probably about thirty to fifty suggested ideas for names. And I didn't like any of them. I thought they were ridiculous, most of them. And so we had to have a meeting. And there was probably, I feel like there was 10 of us sitting in a conference room talking about what are we going to name this game. And uh, it was very surreal. I remember sitting back and taking myself out of it at one point and saying, what are we doing? We are grown men talking about what to name this character. But um, I think early on we, we agreed that the name of the game should be the name of the character. I think we all felt that the character uh, was the selling point. Although, I think Howie, it was Howie that also came up with the name Why Me. He, he put forward the name Why Me as the name of the game. So, try to imagine Kubert being called Why Me. Anyway, as we pursued the name of the character, at one point in this meeting, uh, somebody got up and wrote on the, the, the blackboard, or whiteboard, whatever it was, Hubert, the name Hubert, H-U-B-E-R-T. And they just thought, okay, that's a, I don't know, it's kind of a cute name for a character. It's a silly name, whatever. And then somebody else kind of realized there was an opportunity there, and they said, wait a minute, the game's about cubes. Why don't we call it Cubert with a C? So we replaced the H with a C. Now it said C-U-B-E-R-T. And everybody's starting to get really interested here. You could sort of feel it in the room. There was just a kind of a buzz. And everybody's like, yeah, Q-Bert. Mm. And then somebody else went over and said, okay, wait, 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 wait. 
and they took away the C-U, and they put the letter Q. Okay, what about Q-Bert, right? And I think they put a little dash in there. And Jeff Lee went up, and he changed the dash into an asterisk. And we we're like, yes, yes. And everybody's <laughs> jumping up and down, screaming. Okay, maybe that didn't happen. Maybe that was in my mind. But, um, yeah, every, literally everybody was just in agreement. That's it. And we all knew it at the same time. It was amazing. The yeah. rumor that it was called Snots and Boogers is not true then. You know, Snots and Boogers was, was put forth as a joke. I, 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 I do not ever recall anybody seriously taking snots and boogers as a serious idea. It was a joke, you know, it was like somebody said, hey, he should shoot out of his nose and we should call it snots and boogers and everybody laughed. <laughs> uh, and and it, my, my recollection is that was the extent of it. The eight-year-old child in me would have loved that though, I'm sure. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Listen, I, you know, if we, if we thought we could get away with it, maybe we would have called it that. And if he actually did shoot out of his nose, um, you know, Honestly, snots and boogers is kind of a pun on shoots and ladders. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So that was the gag. It was like supposed to sound like a uh, like a, a children's game. Well, something really innovative about the arcade cabinet, it actually had a knocker in there. What was that and how did it work then? Well, the knocker was a standard pinball knocker. You know, they're, they, they go into pinball games and they're what they are is they're little um, um, uh, cylinders, you know, little pistons, if you will, uh, activated by a, an electrical signal, and they just shoot out and they knock the side of the cabinet. And what happened was one of our engineering techs, a guy named Rick Ty, he decided and decided he, he suggested. He said, after watching the game and playing, he said, well, you know, because Cubert falls off the pyramid, he, he he falls. Where is he falling to? He said, wouldn't it be cool if we put a knocker down at the bottom of the cabinet? And I thought about it and I said, yeah, it. It sounds like it'd be cool, but, you know, the knock, you know, that uh, if it sounds like a knock, like you're knocking on a door, that's not, it's not really the sound of a body falling. I, I was like, I would like it to sound like a sack of potatoes hitting the ground after, a, you know, a fall. So we put the knocker in and we just tried it out. And what we did was we put a little piece of foam on the cabinet where the, where the piston hits. And it softened the sound just enough for it to sound like a sack of potatoes, like a thud. And I loved it. I thought it was a fantastic idea. So we went to management. We said, <clears throat> we said, hey, this is we want to do this. And they were like, well, we can we can do the piston, but the foam is going to cost us fifteen dollars per cabinet in labor cost, and we don't want to do that. So they nixed the foam and they put in the knocker, and the rest is history. <laughs> a lot of people love that feature, but unfortunately. I am aware of how much better it could have been, and so I have mixed mixed feelings about it. So what was the result of the original testing of Cubit? It actually tested pretty well. I mean, my biggest fear uh, was that people would not come back to it after dying. Um, a lot of people at Gottlieb did not like the idea of jumping off the pyramid to your death. They thought you should be locked onto the pyramid. Um, I felt otherwise. I felt like that was a challenge that was not, you know, out of the realm, you know, of reasonableness. So uh, I felt like there's nothing wrong with having to learn to stay on the pyramid. Um, but a lot of people felt like, you know, players would jump off the pyramid and die. And in fact, when it went out on test for the first time, a lot of people did. They would be sitting there on top of the pyramid. They'd push their joystick. They'd fall off and die three times in a row lose their quarter, and walk away. 
So I did start to worry a little bit, <laughs> but um, I also saw those same people come back. Eventually, they would master it, and uh, other people who maybe didn't master it would watch people playing and realize how to avoid jumping off the pyramid, and however it happened, uh, people kept coming back to it, and that was the key. And when that happened, I knew that we at least had something that had a, sh a shot that I, you know, I, that the I felt the basic concept will work and um, the basic gameplay will work, and then it became about tuning. Most people, you know, when when we were doing in-house play testing, that's the the first play testing you always do is just the people in your office playing it. Um, they kept encouraging me to make it easier. They felt it was too hard, and when and when it was new in the you know on test in the arcades. Uh, and I would watch people playing it. it you know, I thought, okay, I'll, I can make it easier at the beginning. So I, I kept sort of tuning it, scaling it back, scaling it back, making it easier. And we did some focus group testing and always came back the same. It's just too hard. And so when it went out the door, it didn't take long for us to get reports of people playing it for hours and hours on end. And I realized almost immediately I'd made it too easy. Uh, and that was just my inexperience of never having made a game, never having tuned a game, and uh, really not not knowing how good those players are out in the field. <laughs> They're way better than the random people you're going to encounter either at work or in one or two arcades or in a focus group. So um, anyway, that, that led to my continuing work on tuning and, and creating this version called Faster, Harder, More Challenging Cuber that, that never got released. But I'm sort of getting ahead of myself. <laughs> I love the but name it, of that, though, as well. It wasn't like Cubert 2 or anything. It was. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I thought of that. You know, Cubert 2, Super Cubert. I mean, those are the obvious things. And I was like, I don't want to do that. And so uh, what I found was every time anybody asked me, well, so what's different about this game? I would end up saying, well, it's faster, it's harder, and it's more challenging. <laughs> and so... <laughs> There, there it was. Uh, there was the name right there. So why did that never get a release properly? Well, we, we did test it. But the thing is, I, I mean, I did this almost immediately after Kubert got released. And it took months for Kubert's, the, the cabinets we built, to sort of get spread out into the, into the world and for people to start playing them. So even though we, we started producing them, I think, in like October, November of 1982, you really don't see a lot of press about Qbert until 1983, like probably spring of 1983 is when it became a phenomenon. Mm. And that's just because, you know, it took time to build these games, get them out into the arcades, people to discover them. Um, and But but I had already done Faster, Harder, More Challenging Qbert like almost instantly after I was done with the original. And it was too soon. So it was going out in arcades and people were still playing and liking the original and... Um, and this, this faster one was too fast, too hard, too challenging for the average player. You know, my, my feeling is if, if we had waited a year, you know, and then put it out, I think it would have done a lot better. I don't know why they didn't do that. I, I, to this day, I have no idea. I mean, certainly wasn't ready when I originally did it, and I understood that. But why we didn't revisit it a year later, I do not know. What was it like for you then, like your first game suddenly blowing up to become this phenomenon? Oh, it was bizarre and surreal. Um, I uh, certainly was gratified that people liked it. Um, it made my life easy. I, I, I didn't make any money off of it, really, um, uh, because I, you know, as any engineer would, when you work for a company, you sign 
a piece of paper that says anything you develop is owned by the company. So really what I got out of it was bragging rights. Um, and unfortunately, I couldn't even use those bragging rights because uh, Gottlieb was so protective of its designers that they would not give us any credit. Like we weren't allowed to put our names in the game. We weren't allowed. When, when, when Video Games Magazine did that article, they were not even allowed to refer to us by name in the article. We had pseudonyms. So my pseudonym was D Designer. The letter D, Zyner. And then uh, Jeff's pseudonym was uh, R. Teast. And Dave's pseudonym was J. Walkman. <laughs> <laughs> Most people at that time didn't care who designed a game. You know, they played a game in the arcades and never thought about where did it come from. Um, so there really wasn't much interest uh, in, in the, the people behind the game. Um, other than in the industry. So it's it sort of, Hubert helped me uh, anytime I wanted to get a job in the video games industry. It was certainly a, a nice calling card. Well, Cubert was obviously ported to a lot of systems, I think 17 um, home consoles in the end and computers. Did you have any quality control over the ports at all? Uh, I did not. Um, that was done by other people. Uh, I did talk to some of those guys. On I, I did write up something that I think got distributed to all of them about sort of like level progressions and just sort of nuts and bolts uh, things of the game. And then I talked to a few of them on the phone, I remember. Um, I don't remember which ones, but uh, I did have some phone conversations. But uh, other than that, yeah, I had uh, I had nothing to do with any of those home home versions. Did you play any of them and uh, any ones that you liked or any ones that you didn't write? The one I think I liked the best was the ColecoVision. I I, um, I just liked the ColecoVision system. Uh, you know, there was we, <laughs> we arcade developers had a little bit of an attitude about home games, you know? Hmm. Like, we felt like we were the Cadillacs, you know? And those guys were the Volkswagens, you know? We, uh, we, we actually had the best graphics you know a lot of those home systems had terrible graphics I mean nowadays I appreciate that these guys had to work under really difficult uh, circumstances and I, I admire what they had to do but you know back then it was like you know I, I kind of dismissed a lot of the home games but ColecoVision um, to me came closest to looking and playing like the arcade version and you know that was that was of course important to me um, and it was like little things too you know sometimes versions the home versions like like i built in a little knee bounce like when cubert jumps and he lands there's like a little shock absorber frame where he he his knees his legs contract a little bit um a lot of people left that out and to me you know i was like oh but that's that's so important <laughs> i know it's stupid but uh, to me that was important well as a player as well i mean you know back in the 80s you're right, I mean, a lot of the ports from the arcade to home systems were often quite disappointing because just technically the systems weren't anywhere near the level of the arcade hardware. So these guys did have a big job, I guess, to get them as near as possible. Yeah, exactly. I mean, some of the, I mean, I, and again, I, I would look at like, let's say the Atari 2600 version of Qbert and I would just be like horrified. Hmm. But, um, you know, it's a business and you want to get your product out there and um, having versions for every possible home system was part of that. Uh, not to mention the merchandising. I mean, Qbert was so ridiculously merchandised. Uh, that was also uh, mind-blowing for me to see, you know. Well, even got made into a cartoon, didn't they? Yeah, Saturday morning cartoon. We, we That's another thing we had absolutely nothing to do with. I think, you know, 
uh, Gottlieb just sort of, uh, you know, licensed the character to, to a company to make that, and um, they ran with it, and, you know, we would just look at it and go, what the hell did they do? But, hey, it's out of our hands, you know, we... We really did not have any any ownership of what happened to Qbert. So you didn't get any royalties from the cartoons or the merchandise. Not I, I got royalties from nothing. The the only thing I did get, um, Gottlieb did give me a bonus. It was is a fairly modest bonus, um, and which I, believe me, I was grateful for because it was my first game. I was grateful just for the opportunity to be working in the industry. But uh, that bonus, uh, you know, was a, a down payment on a condo in Chicago. So, you know, that that really helped me out when I was starting. Uh, and and then Gottlieb, uh, after Mach 3, which was a very successful Laserdisc game for Gottlieb, they actually did institute a royalty program. And I remember the meeting, they called everybody together to announce this new royalty program. And they used Qbert as an example. And they said... So if if Qbert had been done under this royalty program, which is not retroactive, by the way, so Qbert is not eligible for the royalties. But if Qbert had been done, uh, Warren would have made a hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> but that was, was nice like, to hear. I was like, oh yes, <laughs> thank you, thank you so much. Yeah, that did not make me feel good. But um, and and as far as I know, uh, you know, because Gottlieb folded its doors. Uh, shortly uh, after that, I mean, um, Mach 3 wasn't the last game they released. They did release some other games, but I don't think any of them sold enough to qualify for the royalty program. Because they were owned by a few very big companies, weren't they? Columbia Pictures, even Coca-Cola owned them at one point, didn't they? Well, it, so yeah, here's the here's the way it worked. Uh, Gottlieb, of course, a family-owned business until about 1977, and they were bought by Columbia Pictures. Now, they stayed owned by Columbia Pictures and until they were closed. And, and a lot of people seem to get this wrong, but Gottlieb uh, changed their name at one point to Milestar. That literally was all that happened. It was just a name change. Nothing in the company changed other than that. A lot of people think that Gottlieb was bought by Milestar or that Milestar was some other company. Not true. That was literally just a name change. Columbia Pictures, still the parent company. What happened was Coca-Cola bought Columbia Pictures. So... So Coca-Cola became our parent one more step removed. And um, and then they started sort of I, – I, listen, I, I'm not entirely sure how this went down, but my, my feeling or my understanding is that Columbia did not like the ups and downs of the video game industry, and they're the ones that really sort of pushed to get rid of the – or to close the company down. And that's what happened in uh, 1984. Gottlieb got uh, shut down. So is that when you left? Well, everybody left. The company was literally shut down. We walked into work one day, and Ron Waxman shouted out to the entire area, "Ladies and gentlemen, we are closed." And uh, you know, we had to gather our things. We stuck around uh, long enough to have meetings with some uh, uh, severance specialists who uh, told us about our severance packages, uh, and then we were literally out of there forever. I know there's a lot of that happening in the video games industry at the time, obviously, but that must have come as a a bit of a shock. You must have felt a bit like the rug had been pulled out from under your feet. In some in some ways, it was a shock. In some other ways, it was a relief because things we you know there was a sense in the company that things had were not going well, and it's really hard to describe because some of it was just the fact that uh, 
the environment had changed. Um, we had hired sort of a middle manager to crack the whip on a lot of the programmers. I mean, Howie and Ron's um, method of just sort of letting everybody do whatever they wanted worked out great for like Mach 3 and for Qbert. But they then they hired a bunch of people who just basically were not delivering. Uh, some of the people, obviously, there were other games that went out the door, Mad Planets and Crawl, um, and and other people were working on games. But um, there, you know, there was a, they had hired a few people who just sort of weren't pulling their weight, and they hired a middle manager to crack the whip, and then suddenly the environment, you know, it just became a little bit less fun and a little bit more like work. So that had that was one thing that changed, but then also there was just a sense of some foreboding, you know, little people talking in hushed whispers or bigwigs from the company being seen where you would normally not see them, or people from Coca-Cola coming in and you wondering what they're talking about. So there was a little bit of trepidation uh, in the weeks before we were shut down. So in a way, it was just a you know we didn't know what was coming, we didn't know what was going to happen. And then when it happened, it was in some ways a relief, but still sad. Well, obviously, you know, let, let's skip forward a few years. You were actually one of the guys that got into retro gaming quite early because I, I remember here in the, in the late 90s, you kind of tried to track down Qbert's rights. Yes, yeah, yes and no. Um, I, I was curious about who owned the rights to Qbert. And um, I know that um, I'd been talking with um, Jeff Lee and, and Howie Rubin about Qbert and who owned the rights to Qbert and... It, it wasn't much of a stretch to realize that because Columbia Pictures owned Gottlieb, that when uh, Gottlieb closed, all of the rights reverted to Columbia Pictures. Now, I do believe there were some VPs uh, at Gottlieb who formed a company after Gottlieb was closed, uh, and they tried to get the rights to Cuber. They tried to buy the rights to Cuber, and I don't believe they were successful. Well, obviously, they were not because the rights stayed with Columbia Pictures. And then when Sony bought Columbia Pictures, uh, then again, by one one level removed, Sony uh, owned the rights to Kubert. So what happened was in, in the mid to late 90s, I was working, I'd moved to Los Angeles. I was working for Disney, doing uh, home games with Disney. And uh, I went to a game developers conference, which is held every year up in San Francisco. And I remember going to a table in one of the, uh, it was like the job fair or something, and uh, Sony uh, Computer Entertainment had a table. And I remember walking there up to the Sony guys, and I just said, you know, you guys, uh, why, why is it? And, and listen, I was aware that there was now a retro gaming interest. That's something else that happened in the mid-90s. People started contacting me. Uh, to talk about Qbert, which I was like, really? That was, you know, 15 years ago. <laughs> but um, so I was aware of this sort of retro gaming nostalgia interest, and I said to the guys at Sony, I said, you know, you guys, you guys own the rights to Qbert. How come you haven't done anything with it? And I remember the guy I talked to said, we own the rights to Qbert? And he was stunned. He had, and he made a note, and he said, I'm going to look into this. And uh, a year later, there was a Qbert version for the PC. <laughs> It's crazy to think how many of these big companies that have, you know, acquired other companies have got all these long-lost trademarks in their filing cabinets that they don't even know about. Yeah. Well, um, you know, I could, you know, I, I don't know how I feel about it because <laughs> obviously I had nothing to do with any anything. No one has ever asked me to be involved in a Qbert uh, game. Um, and, 
the, the other thing is I, I actually talked to some people from Hasbro Interactive, which is the shop that uh, I think programmed uh, that Cubert uh, uh, that came out for the PC. And I said, you know, I do have some ideas uh, that have never been explored. And, if, you know, I'd be happy to, uh, to work with you on that. And they would said, oh, yeah, absolutely. We'd love to pick your brain, you know. Uh, when can we sit down? And I was like, well, you know, we'd have to work out an agreement. He's like, oh, we don't want to pay you. We just, we just want to hear all your ideas. So I was like, yeah, that's not going to work. Well, obviously, Cuba has become, you know, an icon in video games. And, you know, he's been in movies in recent years, like, you know, Pixels and Wreck-It Ralph. Seeing him involved in, like, you know, blockbuster movies, was that a bit surreal? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, Wreck-It Ralph was... Uh, kind of lovely i mean I, I i'm i'm not sure how i felt when i saw it and i saw you know cubert as this sort of like dejected down and out guy <laughs> i don't know how i felt about the depiction but on some level i had to acknowledge that that was in some way true um whereas characters like frogger and donkey kong uh seemed to always get mentioned when anybody ever talked about retro gaming uh Cubert would never be mentioned, I would find, or I would say rarely be mentioned. So um, I was kind of feeling like that really was on the mark. But yeah, I was very grateful, um, well, maybe not grateful, gratified, let's put it that way, that, uh, you know, Cubert is finding a life now with a younger generation. I think that's awesome. Um, it is a little bit of a, you know, it's a bitter pill that to see that something you created you know, you're you're not in any way like Sony doesn't acknowledge um, either me or Jeff or Dave in any way uh, that we ever that it was ever created, and so that that you know, is a little upsetting. Um, you know, the monetary thing. Listen, that's the law. Uh, unfortunately, it's it's been true for musicians, for comic book artists, uh, for decades that uh, people create things and don't ever see a monetary uh, you know return from that. So really, all that's left is just maybe uh, recognition, and it's very gratifying to see you know people still responding to the character. That's just wonderful. I think you're right as well that a new generation is discovering it because you know I think when he's brought to life in these movies as well, you see him as kind of a a lovable, cuddly character that definitely will appeal to kids in the younger generation. I think. Well, and I do, and it is a shame because I do have some ideas of of ways to use this character that I, I just have never seen anybody even attempt. Um, I actually tried to pitch to Sony. I, I, ironically, I do some consulting work for Sony, and um, uh, a few years ago, I tried to pitch them some, uh, you know, d to do another Cubert uh, game, and uh, they did. They were not interested. But there was that Cubert rebooted game that came out in 2015, wasn't it? Did, did you not have any involvement at all with that then? Nope, not not a bit. Did you play it? Uh, I did. Yeah, for a few for a few seconds at uh, the, the E3 uh, show, but um, yeah, you know, it's it's okay <laughs> if people <laughs> like it then that's great uh you know it's it's not what i would have done so do you think you'll ever not, get to do anything with cubit then again or would you like to if, if the opportunity was there you know i would i would and for for years i thought i i really wouldn't do it at all um but lately i start to think you know if somebody actually uh did want to work with me on a cubit game i'd be happy to do that like i said i I do have some ideas. I do have some ideas I like to pursue. And who knows, maybe I'll just do it on my own. Certainly the tools are there for me to do it on my own. Then it, it's just really a matter of time. Um, but, uh, and then, of course, I'd have to get the rights. So that'd be an interesting, uh, that'd be an interesting endeavor. Well, even, obviously, um, Ready Player One, the movie, is due out very soon. And obviously, Cubit's in the book 
is what he's referenced. Do you know if he's going to be in the film? You know, I do not. I do not know that. I would uh, love it if it was, but I'm wondering, again, because getting the rights to characters, to actual video game characters, would be something of, of a challenge, I think. So, uh, yeah, I don't know how, how many of those are going to make it into that movie. And Kubert really, I believe, and I read the book, I loved the book, but it was only mentioned, he was only mentioned in passing maybe once. I, I, it, he certainly doesn't figure into the book in a major way. Well, obviously, Cubit has become part of legendary video games characters. You know, he's up there with the likes of Pac-Man. And it's great just to find out the story of something so iconic. And it must be great for you that people are still interested in this subject, like, you know, nearly 40 years after the original game was conceived. It's Yeah, it's crazy. Uh, but like you said, it's very gratifying. Um, uh, I'm certainly... Uh, you know, thrilled that that people like the game, that people still like the game, people like the character. Uh, I I mean, it's it, you know, warm and fuzzy uh, all the time. And what are you working on these days, Emor? You know, I do a lot of things. Uh, I um, still do some software consulting um, as related to the games industry. Uh, I also uh, am heavily involved in theater here in Los Angeles, uh, acting and directing. I also do sound design for theater. Uh, and uh, I'm also, uh, something I've been talking about for years, I'm actually writing my video game memoir. <clears throat> this is something I literally have been talking about doing for probably 10 years. Uh, and finally hunkered down and started doing it. And I hope that uh, by the end of this year, I will actually have a, uh, a finished book wow. that will talk about all of my video game stories. Because there are quite a few. I realized that there were actually a lot of video game stories. I tell them... You know, here and there, there are some I've never told. And I thought, you know, this probably should just be in a book. Well, when the uh, book's eventually, you know, ready to be uh, released, we'll, we'll definitely be mentioning it on the show. So I'm sure people will hear about it. I appreciate it. That'd be great. And fingers crossed one day you can do something with Cuba again. That would be amazing, I think. Well, thank you very much. From your lips to God's ears. <laughs> <laughs> really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us, Warren. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. <laughs>